Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, some of you may have heard me say this in our last episode, but just in case you missed it, our new cadence during this pandemic is on Mondays. We're going to drop themed episodes really keying in on topical issues in this pandemic, including romantic relationships, how to work from home, ethics. And on Wednesdays, we're going to talk to old school heavy hitter meditation teachers to help you mainline wisdom during these dark times. So let's get to this week's episode. Even in the middle of a pandemic, it is still okay to experience delight. That is per legendary meditation teacher, Sylvia Borstein, our guest today. In fact, she says moments of happiness can fortify you to deal with the difficulties we're all facing. In other words, joy is a necessity right now, not a luxury. That's just one of the many wisdom bombs you will hear Borstein drop in this conversation. We also discuss how to cultivate what she calls inner cordiality And we talk about the quality of mind that has become her, quote unquote, savior in this pandemic. Borstein is a genuine contemplative OG. She was part of the vanguard of teachers who introduced mindfulness into the American mainstream back in the 60s and 70s. She is still going strong. She's in her mid 80s after having lived a very colorful life. Not only is she one of America's most respected meditation teachers, but she's also a psychotherapist, a peace activist and a grandmother. As you'll hear, when she's not meditating, she's a very gifted storyteller. She self-deprecatingly refers to this quality as boundless tacharemia. But I suspect for you, listening to Sylvia will in itself be a source of delight. So here we go, Sylvia Borstein. I noticed from chatting with you uh, before we got started that your giggle is still intact. I <laughs> No, I noticed that also. And... <laughs> I thought to myself, I actually did think that. So don't say, I thought to myself, all right, Sylvia, do not start this with the giggle because um, it down a little bit with the giggle uh, because these are very somber times. And this is, but I realized after we talked, after I saw you right there on the screen, that uh, how I felt really good about seeing you. I felt really good about doing this. And my concerns about don't do this, Sylvia, don't do that, which are all worry concerns went away. And what remains is me and how it comes out is me. And uh, the giggle is part of me. Um, Two of my children have it and one of my grandchildren. It's a hereditary factor, I'm sure. Don't you think, I feel like it's okay to giggle in a pandemic once in a while. I think, well, from my own experience, when I laugh, um, as I did with you, it was out of delight, out of seeing you again and having this chance to talk. And every time there's a moment of delight, uh, it just is what's true in that moment. It doesn't mean that the pandemic is not happening and that there, uh, that there are people that I'm seriously concerned about. There's everybody, there's the world that I'm seriously concerned about. But in that moment of delight is a moment of delight. I've been thinking about asking people to make lists and share them with people about what are you doing to keep your your mind, keep the mind somewhat afloat during these times where they're really seriously afflicted by the gravity of what's happening. And I've been so happy that the Metropolitan Opera 
has been live streaming a new opera every single day. And uh, did you know that? It's because it's been a fantastic thing. Opera lovers are beside themselves. Uh, normally you have to sign up and they normally don't do this every single day, sign up or not. And we're seeing some of the greatest performances of the last decades. Um, they run for 24 hours. You don't even have to log on at a particular time. And then they change to the next one. And then they change to the next one. And today is the first day of the National Theatre of London doing a continuous loop of one of their theatricals. And I heard that one of the Broadway plays is somehow going to do, uh, I've forgotten what it was, but a Broadway musical of great renown. Uh, what was it? It's going to start today anyway. And the, and people are giving away sources of delight. And it seems to me such a lovely act of kindness to one another. I mean, that we all, they're also sort of teaching online. Some parents can homeschool their children. But really for, to, for purveyors of delight, like the, the Berlin Symphony, Berlin Philharmonic, you can also listen to online. And the, the idea that this is what keeps the mind and the, and the heart afloat in these very difficult times. What are we going to look for for picking the heart up so that it doesn't, it, it doesn't lose its energy or its hopefulness or its feeling of helpfulness? In a, as I say that to you, I'm going to give you. I should give you a chance to say something. But as I as I said that to you, I realized that in a paradoxical way, when if I watch some news coverage on television, which I try very hard to limit, because reading it in the newspaper or reading it online is less overwhelming than seeing it in in real time. But when I look at it. Uh, look, I looked a couple of days ago and they showed some pictures of um, health workers, uh, nurses and first responders just coming to a hospital and bringing in person after person and picking them up and putting them on gurneys and all in very close proximity to each other. And I realized everybody has such courage and such devotion. And I was picked up in my heart by the courage and the devotion that people are showing that are part of what the range of human response can be. And I, I, I looked at it and I got, it was an enormously terrible and terrifying scene. And I felt buoyed up by looking at such a demonstration of human kindness and generosity and taking care of other people as superseding personal concerns and personal fears. So it both that uh, an awareness of the the limit the 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 apparently tremendous limits of of human kindness and to have periods of delight in human creativity like listening to all four of the ring series one after another after another after another and hearing beautiful voices singing them so both ways delightful things and uh, amazing acts of kindness Plus one to both of those things. I here in New York City at seven o'clock in the evening every day, people come to their windows or their balconies and cheer for the health workers. And my five-year-old son has been banging pots and pans. <laughs> uh, it's really it it does it does lift you up to think about the sacrifices. Uh, it's horrifying that these sacrifices have to be made, but the the fact that courage is in the human repertoire in that way yeah. is 
it is uplifting. And and then just back to delight, what I took from what you said was that delight actually may not be a luxury right now. It might be a necessity. I th- I, I, I can remember. I'm nodding now. I have to remember an example. But I can remember saying so frequently, if we only saw the pain of human existence, if we only saw the inherent suffering in it, uh, I don't know how we could manage unless we had counteractively the delight of seeing that uh, the the um, bulbs that bloom in the spring that have already bloomed in California don't know that there's a, an epidemic or pandemic happening. They're coming up just the same and exactly the same time. And they're as beautiful and as varied and as marvelous as they were last year. There's something I was thinking about when I was out yesterday on my walk and the, the flowering cherries are all covered with white blossoms. You think, wow, look at that. All of this stuff is going to be here next year and the year after and the year after. And it's going to go on. It's one of those things. And way past us, maybe, or any one of us, certainly. But there's something about that. It's it's like the moon waxing and waning, independent of the pandemic. And the things that you can look at and say, that's amazing. I may have told you that, um, because I often do when I'm, telling people about that, that, that feature of the human mind, being able to uh, relish uh, what's extraordinary and take personal delight. Mudita, it's not mine. I didn't do it. But I am delighted that, the, uh, that other people have that skill. I listen to fantastic singers, and I can't carry a tune, but I'm delighted that some people can and that they studied so hard. So I talk a lot about we need that delight in order to counteract the seeing clearly how inherent in the human condition is the possibility of suffering, that uh, the first noble truth of the Buddha is really true. And I think that what I've been thinking more and more now during this time is that the fact that the whole of the planet at the same time is faced with an awareness of this and is frightened. I think maybe one of those times when maybe the whole of the planet could wake up. Um, I I just, I'm thinking as I say that to you, that I hope that doesn't sound so, you know, one of these, the best thing I learned from my first heart attack. Uh, I I remember... Oh, my, I had a friend who died uh, oh, 30 years ago. Of um, She died of uh, breast cancer, and she was a young woman in her 40s. She had a family. She had adolescent children. She had um, a thriving law practice. And uh, she had some time as she was dying to put her affairs all in order and to reconcile with her ex-husband and to reconcile with her ex-husband's now current wife and to cause her children to feel reconciled with the ex-husband and the wife. And she said to me, as she was nearing her end, she said, you know, the thing is, this has been so emotionally a learning curve for me. I've learned so much from my cancer. And if you want to know the truth, I would have rather not had the cancer and not learned. So, (laughs) (laughs) but that's it. You know, this, 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 
because it sounds Pollyanna to say maybe the whole world is look around and think, oh, dear, look what we're doing to each other. And we're so vulnerable. And all of us would feel terrible missing each other. Let's stop doing it now. Let's let's now decide now's the time to really preserve the earth so our grandchildren can live on it. But I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, you know, my first heart attack saved my life and woke me up. But maybe it will. Maybe it will. I hope it will. I I hope so too. I mean, if you look at history though, cataclysms tend to bring out both our best and our worst. And to have lots of consequences that are very hard to foresee. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, after the 2016 election, I took myself out of the prediction game permanently, and I feel mm-hmm. very comfortable still being out of the game. Mm-hmm. No, I, I also think that's beyond what I can think about and get upset in advance about. You know what I'm also finding, though? This, this is a thought that occurred to me yesterday, that in a certain way, it occurred to me when while I was on a walk by myself, of course, and I see people and I pass people at a distance, as everybody does, and I realize I'm spending a lot of time quietly by myself, going for a walk, coming back home. I live with my husband, so we are both sheltered in place, so I, I'm not all alone. But it's a lot of time, and in a certain way, it occurred to me, it's just like a retreat, because I can go out of my house, but I can't go out of my two people and my area. I can't, because of my age, comfortably go into a supermarket. So I really can't leave. And what I really can't leave is, like when you're on a retreat, you can't leave, and you think, oh, I'm stuck here. Now I'm in a world that I can't leave. So even if I could go to the supermarket or could drive my car to the next county, I can't drive out of the world where there's no coronavirus. It's everywhere. And in a certain way, when you get up in the morning, you think, oh, I wonder how the world is. And when you go to bed at night, you think, oh, I wonder when I wake up how the news is going to be. We have, I have anyway, a really like a, 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 an overarching focus of my attention, which doesn't mean that during the day I'm not doing the laundry or cooking or doing whatever I'm doing. But the pandemic is always there. And the way I, I, the way I came to think about it is I was uh, uh, variations of this. I was walking along and thinking this and that and the other, as one does when you're walking along and appreciating. I walk by a bird lagoon, appreciating that and thinking this and thinking that. And I I thought of somebody that, I don't know what the train of consciousness was, but it was somebody that I thought, oh, I remember about so-and-so. And then I realized that I had thought about somebody in an affectionate way, in a pleasant way. In my mind, thinking of them was not accompanied by any gloss of negativity at all. And 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 then I realized that, that I had just thought about X, in a way that had no negativity in it. And I realized I haven't thought about X with no negativity in a long time. And not great hostility, but X was not one of my favorite people. And I I thought about X, and my mind was completely unruffled by X. And then I thought, ah. And then a little time went by, and I had some opinion of something. Or maybe it was, I walked by a very small 
Chinese restaurant that's two or three blocks from where I live. And I had the thought, it was closed, of course, except for takeout. I walked by and I had a thought, the food there's not so good. Uh, a kind of a negative thought, not horrible, but negative thought. Then I had the immediate thought, you haven't eaten there in 30 years. You don't know. <laughs> it's been there for 30 years. Maybe it's changed owners 10 times. That's an old opinion that you had there that came out to color that moment. Maybe it's great now. And look at them. They're open in this virus time and they're doing business and they're trying to make a go of it. And then I thought to myself, what if my mind is so focused on this really big um, object of meditation that other stuff like pesky negativities that I don't need to have to begin with can't get a hold. It's like, it's almost not worth it. I, it's like, I've decided my mind thinks, ah, that's not worth remembering what that person said that I had X said that I had that bad feeling about. It's not, it's ridiculous to make an opinion about the restaurant. I haven't been there in 30 years. And what I was finding as the day went on and extraneous opinions of a negative type were dropping away. I thought about the, the phrase, there's a phrase from the third Zen patriarch that uh, I actually liked so well. I had it, I had it made onto pencils, you know, those pencils that you can send away and get 20 Mm -hmm. pencils with a phrase. This says, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. What do I need that opinion about the restaurant or that opinion about X? It's messing up part of the real estate of my mind and my heart. I don't need it. But then I thought, I'm not even doing anything about it. I am being done by this virus. Maybe the virus is a retreat that I've wandered into. Maybe I can understand it as a retreat that I'm in that's focusing my attention, during which time I have the opportunity to see, oh, that's an opinion I don't need. That's an opinion I don't need. That's another opinion I don't need. Do a little housekeeping of old opinions and unburden my mind about it. I'm convinced that that's the main thing that I teach these days anyway, that what I am trying to do is make my mind sweeter in general. And here's an opportunity to do it without even intentionally doing it. All I'm doing is living through this and it is doing it. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I would like to borrow your mind. Uh, That's my first thought. (laughs) I, so my thought when I, it makes complete sense to me that the enormity of the current situation would, would throw our habitual storylines into question in a way that when the negative opinions uh, surface, we might we might see how silly they are. However, for me at least, the pandemic itself, the the outbreak is so disturbing that yes, it might have the knock on effect of of making me see how silly some of my ancient storylines are. But I do find nonetheless that there is sort of an overarching despair. You know, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, right. I'm back in this thing. Mm-hmm. 
No, we are every morning back in this thing. And I do wake up and I have all the apps on my phone that tell me what the New York Times summary of yesterday is and what CNN summary of what yesterday is. And it's a sobering way to start the day. Um, and uh, sometimes I think to myself, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to sit a little bit now. I'm an early riser anyway. I think, all right, I'm going to sit. I'm going to think about all my friends and hold them in my heart. And uh, I certainly don't want to look at this telephone right now and mess up my mind more before sitting. And then I don't do that. I look at the telephone because I really do want to know what's going on. And I, I do that. I don't do it mindlessly. I do it purposely knowing I'm doing it, knowing it's probably not great for the meditation. But it's actually very sobering for my heart. You know what I think? Oh, I'm I'm so glad we're talking about this because I hadn't thought to say it in this exact way. It's not an unusual thing in a Dharma scene to end a meditation or to end a class or to end some period of devotional, say, loving kindness practice by saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. It's a sweet phrase to say. And... Um, I don't know how many times I've said it at the end of a class or a teaching or whatever. My all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering thing. All of a sudden, this is the first time that I've had glimpses of what does it mean, all beings? Because here we are on this world and we can see in maps and charts and videos that really at this point, all beings are imperiled. And before it's been kind of an amorphous thing. I've kind of thought about it. But I haven't thought about it, I haven't felt about it. Maybe the word is grok. I did not grok that as much as I do now. The other thing that I'm thinking about, let's see if I can do this. This is a new thing. So let's see if I can think it more or less succinctly. For the first 10 or 20 or maybe even 30 years of my practice, I was thinking that the goal of freedom of suffering, freedom from suffering in this mind was going to be wisdom, that I would so thoroughly grok through intense meditative insights that arose in cloistered situations and hours and hours of of retreat, that I would so thoroughly uh, understand that everything is impermanent and that everything depends on everything else. Nothing is not connected to anything else. And that uh, suffering is a manifestation of the habits of the mind that complicate what's coming up moment to moment. That I would be so so um, resolute in that wisdom that my mind would be at ease no matter what happened and then I'd feel better. And that would be the goal of my practice. I have thought, but I don't think I've ever articulated it just the way I'm doing now, that the the corollary uh, or the cognate or the attached thing over all these years has been to think as wisdom accrues, then we are more compassionate because we more and more realize that the same causes of, of our suffering are the causes of suffering for for other people. And we we become more attuned to other people's suffering and more, or maybe this is it, more oriented to other people's suffering. And what I'm thinking is 
I'm not sure about that, more attuned to, but uh, we are now so oriented to other people's suffering because we can't not be. The news around us all the time is showing us people all over the world suffering, all kinds of people near and far, and then we hear about uh, from our friends and our relatives. And I'm thinking that it was more hypothetical to me before that kindness would happen, or that we should, where the emphasis should be is on developing wisdom so that we've had kindness. We would have kindness as more and more of a response. And before I said to you that uh, my, my goal in my practice is to have a sweeter and sweeter mind, not because I won an award for the most sweet, sweet mind, but because I would be a happier and happier person. But I didn't, I, I actually wrote a book about that. But, but now with some chagrin, I think now I actually get it. Ex post facto, even ex post facto to writing the book. I'm not at all sure that we need wisdom. I think that people who are naturally kind, who live their whole life attuned to the needs of others and responding to them are happier people. And, um, does that make sense to you? It does. I think I would love to have you for people who are new to the this discussion about the interwoven nature, the double helix nature of wisdom and compassion. Could you just define the terms for people so they could get a could get a sense of uh, why this why this is becoming particularly salient and important to you now? Well, I think that as I was introduced to the Dharma, which I loved from the moment that I heard it, um, it seemed to me that uh, I was learning how to, particularly how to uh, feel that uh, the habits of my, that I, I, that my own actions, my own mental actions had something to do with um, modulating the habits of my mind so that I was not as uh, pushed around by any kind of thought or feeling or idea or emotion uh, that came up, that I might learn to have some, that I could habituate my mind to thoughtfulness, to uh, steadiness, to waiting for a moment. Uh, I, for a long time, I was talking, teaching about Think it over in between having a feeling and an impulse to do something. Think it over. Is this going to be for people's good, not for people's good, for my own good, not for my good? It was more about cerebral changes that I would be wiser. I'd uh, have a more thoughtful life, which I certainly am. I'm not saying not to have a thoughtful life. And I think the Buddha didn't, didn't say pay all attention to that. I think just the way that I learned and in the retreats that I learned, the emphasis was on seeing the habits of one's own mind that led to confusion and led to thoughtlessness and doing things that caused more and more problems for myself and other people. I think that I am changing. That I still think that's very, very important, and I certainly teach it. I am thinking of primary primary importance is the idea of teaching that paying attention to other people and their needs is an immediate solution to being 
pulled under by your own preoccupations and your own needs. That the the person next to me is my surest salvation. If I turn to somebody and say, how are you? And how are you doing these days? And they say, well, I'm so glad you asked. I'm terrified. And I have my children at home and my husband's job is imperiled. They feel better because you asked, but you feel better because you asked. And for a moment, you are not preoccupied with your stuff and your own mortality or your own vulnerability. And I think that is the biggest secret of all, that kindness is actually the salvation, the source of happiness, that uh, we are we are uh, so preoccupied with our own self and maybe not for all time, but certainly recently. Uh, how do I feel and what's my emotion? And I really think, uh, I just said it, so I don't need to say it again, but my salvation is being interested in other people, being interested in other living things, reaching out to them. Um, here's a, like, this is such a leap, but the, the image that comes to mind is in, exper- in um, experiences, in experiments with nursing homes and elderly people, those that were given a potted plant with the instructions to feed it everyday water got very involved in the plant. They felt better. They did better. They thrived more because they were taking care of another living thing, not just themselves. And kindness is looking out for another living thing, not yourself. You can even be kind to yourself in kind of a semantic way, and then we call it compassion or something. But thinking about uh, ethics, for instance, are all ways of behaving ethically telling the truth, are all ways of being kind to people because you level the level of playing field. You tell them the the truth about things. If there's material to put out, you're not keeping it a secret. Uh, Maybe this will lead to uh, a a renewal of, um, what's the right word? Um, Integrity. Maybe... Integrity and kindness, uh, well, integrity is a kind of form of expression of kindness, but um, moderation, honesty, I'm actually naming off all the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the qualities of heart that are part of Theravada practice. Do you know about them? You must know there's a list of 10 qualities of heart that the Buddha is said to have uh, uh, needed to establish in himself before he was worthy of his enlightenment. Do you know that story? No, I don't know this. Oh, this is a great thing to say. This is a piece of Buddhist folklore, and it shows up in uh, Buddhist children's stories, Jataka tales, uh, where they don't say the Buddha uh, did this and this and this, they're like fables. Uh, there was a great ox in the forest and he behaved in a certain way, or there was a very wise monkey who behaved in a certain way. And you can look up Jataka tales. You can also read them in my book. It's not nice to say that, but it's true. <laughs> this is a safe place to plug books. Okay, so my the, so here, I, this is also true. My favorite of the books I've written is called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And I'm and when people at the time said, what's the name of your book? I said, pay attention for goodness sake. It seemed like I was sort of mocking them back. 
but the name of the book is <laughs> Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And the thesis of that book is that if you really paid attention, it would so convert your heart to goodness. If we really paid attention, this is fundamental dharma of the Buddha, we would see that everybody who's born is subject to the same vulnerability to loss. We don't. We get born into different circumstances. We get born with different talents and different abilities. But everybody who gets born and thrives and lives and gets brought up by people and is in a life with people is then now vulnerable to losing that person and vulnerable to aging, losing their their own viability and vitality and youth. And that's really the disease that we all already have. We, I've been thinking about that. We are all liable to the uh, coronavirus virus. And once we have it, we might die. And I was thinking, not to make it sound like, well, that doesn't matter because, but really, uh, we are all already suffering from being alive. And we will surely die, we'll either we'll get old and be sick and die, or we'll die before we're old. And we'll truly, we have already, everyone that is listening or everyone that you talk to, everybody has lost, everybody, many people who are dear to them, people's homes are filled. I have pictures on my wall of my grandmother and my grandfather and their parents that I didn't ever meet, but we all feel connected to people who aren't here anymore. And we're not most of the time in grief about it, but just after we lose somebody, everybody who is is losing people in this coronavirus has got to be in the middle of enormous grief. Not only grief, but fear. Do I have it? Who else has it? How am I going to manage after this? This is a really, Buddha's first noble truth in an amazing phenomenally worldwide graphic way. So should we, um, I'm just curious, should we connect that to the, the list of qualities the Buddha was supposed to have? I'm so glad I forgot where I was going with that. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) You're very good. Okay. Here's where we're going. (laughs) Here's where we're going. Uh, the, so we learned that, that, uh, that's, um, uh, that this is true for everybody. But, you know, I don't think, Dan, that everybody gets it when they first, when I heard it, and you also heard the first time you heard a Dharma talk about old age, sickness, and death. I thought, well, that's interesting, like an Aesop's fable, you know, because I was very much younger than I am now. And old age and sickness and death, although my mother had died already, I was 40 years old, but my mother had died two decades earlier. And that had been a grievous loss, but that already happened. And my old age sickness and death was going to be long away, I thought. And it did not seem so universally a critical thing. But what is universally critical is that the the whole of life is getting used to the loss of something. We don't even notice it, that all of a sudden we could uh, swim X many laps and then we can't or we could run up the steps and then we can't, or we can walk down the steps without holding onto the handrail. I'm sometimes going down the steps of some building holding a handrail 
and looking carefully. And down past me will come bounding some lanky teenager who takes four steps at a time, is not holding on to anything and lopes down the steps. So that we keep on losing capacities from when we're probably late 20s on. We apparently, according to the science, start losing mental capacities slowly, slowly. We start losing our parents. We start losing our friends, sometimes in accidents all of a sudden. But they happen and they, they're, they're grievous and we're shocked. And then by and by, we do a regular life again. The mind heals. And the mind is not preoccupied with, uh-oh, who knows how long this one's going to live. They're really dear to me. And probably if we were pre- preoccupied with that, we would never leave the people that we love if we thought... This is maybe a little bit, oh, sad to say. Maybe make people a little... Anyway, there was a period of time in my life when I became so aware of this that when I said to my children in the morning and they were leaving for school, I said, I'll see you later. When all of a sudden, when I said, I'll see you later, and it gave me an uneasy feeling because I was just starting to realize, you know, that I probably would see them later, and I always did. But anytime we say to somebody, I'll see you later, we don't know. And every time I see somebody, maybe the delight I have, and I saw you again, is, oh, is not only I was delighted with you the last time, but you're still there, and I'm still happy about it. So the 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 I, I think that we all are suffering with our case of radical uncertainty or radical vulnerability, and we don't know it. We don't we pretend it's not there. I'll see you at the end of camp, I'll see you at the end of the day, I'll see you, whatever. There are, um, you know, when I, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in a really traditionally Jewish household, and uh, we said certain prayers on certain holidays, as this week is going to be the week of Passover. So on the first night when you arrive, every the opening part of the Passover service, in addition to every other prayer and blessing that you say is I'm really grateful that I've been kept in life and supported in my living so that I made it to this day or so I made it to that day. And it was my father's favorite blessing. He used to say it when we went swimming together every year in uh, the Atlantic Ocean when it got warm enough. We lived down the street from there and we'd go swimming again in June or July. And he would make that prayer about I'm really grateful that I made it another year to step into the ocean. And I and there was something about even when I was a child, I liked that very well of saying it's magic that we made it till now and I have gratitude about it. Um, and then when I got older, I got a little bit sort of morbid about it. You really never know. And then uh, now I'm old and now I think the very least I can do is... Um, try to celebrate and be grateful for and appreciate every day that I do have and call as many friends as I can and um, be on as many podcasts and <laughs> Zoom calls as I can be. <laughs> uh, and uh, keep saying to people, it does, you know, it does matter what happens, but it also matters what we do today and that, um, now, let me tell you, what I still have made that connection between the Buddha said, this is what, I, what, this is what I've, when he had his enlightenment, uh, 
what he said was, this is how I understand everything is impermanent. Everything depends on everything else. And suffering is the uh, result of habits of mind that complicate situations that don't need to be so complicated. That's his wisdom. The wisdom about how he needed to prepare himself in his heart for that point where he was able to really grok that was that he had to perfect 10 particular perfections of character. And the the perfections of character are called paramitas, P-A-R-A-M-I-T-A. And in the Tibetan school, there are 10. No, Tibetan school has six. The Theravadas have 10. The 10 are, it would be embarrassing if I don't remember them, (laughs) generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, truthfulness, patience, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. Good. Phew. (laughs) Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. And Sylvia, how's your energy level? How do you, um, we, we, we can, we can come to a close whenever you would like. I mean, uh, what's, how are you feeling? Well, I feel great. And as you know, I have boundless talkeremia is a a quality. (laughs) (laughs) According to my parents, I had it as a child. So if you are interested, <laughs> so uh, people have never imagined I'd be able to be a teacher who taught silent retreats. And the truth is, I love to be on silent retreats. But when I talk, I love to talk. So uh, what what else would you like to know, Dan? So I'm impressed that you were able to to pull off the the that the list of the paramitas. What, just re- refresh my memory. Why? What's the significance of these as it pertains to sort of what we're living through now? The significance of all of the paramitas and what we're living in now is that all of them, they seem like 10 different things, but if you think about them, they are all character characteristics of integrity. And the thesis that I had when I wrote that book is that they're all permutations of generosity. In anybody's list of paramitas, 
the Tibetan list or the Theravada list, the generosity is always the first one, generosity, then other ones. All of the paramitas are uh, permutations of generosity. If you think about truthfulness, if you have information that somebody else doesn't have, uh, like who's going to win the ball game and you're going to play a place a bet on it or, uh, and you tell them what, if, if you share your information, if useful information with somebody uh, in, in, in contrast to say, I'm going to keep this use, information for myself, that's a gift of generosity. I saw yesterday uh, a news clipping of a company somewhere in the Midwest, Ohio or Indiana, that has developed a way of re-sanitizing huge quantities of face masks in an hour or two so that thousands of uh, masks are really renovated to be sterile. And uh, they interviewed him. He's got a factory, a small factory in the Midwest. And you see him working away with his folks there. And he said, anybody who wants to call me, I'll give you the instructions for how to do it. Not, uh, you know, I'll sell them to you. I'll tell you the instructions. Anybody who wants to have the formula for doing it, I'll send you the instructions and I'll give you some help. That's about giving people a gift of something or the information. Someone doesn't... Um, send you a certain document and you call them and they say, Oh, so sorry. I just, it slipped my mind. And that document was, you felt vital to your work and you have a split second in which you can decide whether or not to have a little fit about it on the phone (laughs) or whether you can say, you know, perhaps I didn't make it clear to you that I really need the document. Could you please send it to me just now as we hang up or something? It's a it's a it's a demonstration of patience. It's also a demonstration of kindness. It's also a demonstration of wisdom, because if you have a fit that doesn't get the document there any faster, the document will get there when it gets there. More likely it'll get there if you're pleasant to them. All of the paramitas are are like Dharmets, they're little teachings of how kindness and integrity and what's going to make it better for the other person is the definitive operative force. And I think it's lovely. I, I think the story about the Buddha in previous lifetimes is a fable. I, you know, I'm glad to think of it as a fable, but I think it's a really terrific um, demonstration or a metaphor or something for the fact that we feel better when we manifest uh, our response to situations always in a way that's based on calm I've seen the Dalai Lama talk about that in various films that he's talked about, where he was the head of state and got things done. He said, sometimes people get on your nerves. Sometimes anger arises in you. But then you say, listen, this needs to be done. You say, well, he's the Dalai Lama. He can do that. But we can do that. That's not that all hard. So now why do I tell you this whole thing now? What does it have to do with us now? I had a theory a long time ago that this is a theory that caused me to write that book, actually, that when I had come up in the Dharma, when I started in the 1970s, I learned a certain formulation. It was like a, a um, like a, an equation in a chemistry class where you put uh, a sodium plus chlorine and you get hydrogen chloride. And, they sh- and chemical equations show a, uh, an arrow. You this plus this 
leads with an arrow to this. And I had learned Dharma that way, that paying careful attention would lead to insights, which would build up as deeper insights, which would build up as wisdom into the suffering condition of all living beings, which would then manifest as kindness, because we would be so touched when we realize that everyone suffers. And then I thought to myself, it was, at least in my mind, very much weighted on deep personal insights about impermanence and about how the mind habits create suffering. And I thought, what if people can't meditate? What if people aren't good at this? What if they don't have the capacity to get these deep insights? Couldn't we just, as in chemistry, start the equation on the other side instead of paying attention over time, leads to insight, leads to wisdom, leads to kindness. Why don't we start over here with the kindness and with compassion and with uh, really taking integrity seriously? And we'll behave as if we had those insights and we did everything scrupulously, carefully. Wouldn't that then so balance your own mind with the happiness of being so scrupulous about it and the happiness of spreading that kind of um, balm onto the world of suffering, that you might have some insights. And why do you have to have insights anyway if you're already behaving in a way that soothes other people's minds and bodies and your own? Maybe you don't need to be able to articulate insights. So that's, in fact, what caused me to... Well, also I had lots of stories I wanted to tell, but it was one of the reasons that I wanted to write that book, uh, that uh, that it's not only this way, that the equation goes two ways. You can start here and it will lead you to compassion, wisdom, and then compassion. And then, um, or you could start with compassion and have wisdom. Or you could do both at the same time. Or you could do both at the same time. I mean, that's why I like the way... Um... I've been taught, at least in meditation, you do mindfulness practice, pay attention to your breath, pay attention to the feelings in your body, pay attention to the sort of flavor of your emotions. You do that mindfulness practice, which is what gets most of the airtime in the meditation world. But you also do loving kindness practice, uh, which can that has lots of salutary effects on the mind uh, uh, for when you go back to basic mindfulness because your loving kindness practice boosts your ability to focus because you're, it is a concentration exercise. You're repeating these phrases in your mind as you envision people. But it also it can have behavioral impacts in, in, in that you can be a, it may lead you to be a kinder person. And the lowering the volume of remorse can also boost your ability to to focus. And so these two practices, and the, the latter of which, loving kindness, I, I think doesn't get enough airtime, uh, can be mutually reinforcing. I think so. Uh, you, uh, you, you're right about you have less remorse because you will have done less things to stir up distress in the mind. I think, I think also that I'm hopeful that over time people will... will begin to meld an understanding of both practices. Uh, Here's a a thought that I have is that it's actually um, 
a heuristic device to separate this is loving kindness and this is mindfulness practice. I actually think they're all forms of mindfulness practice. Mm. I don't think you can moment to moment be grokking the experience and knowing what it is and not complicating it, which is moment to moment mindfulness, be steady enough as moments arise and pass through to know what they feel like, to know what comes, know what's happening, what's coming up in you, uh, what your impulse to do to how to, to respond is, what your choice of response is. I think in order to do that successfully, there needs to be a certain ease of heart and cordiality of spirit that, uh, that accompanies that. So it's not, uh, it's not a methodical this, 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 and now I'm going to bring cordiality of spirit. I have been teaching, among other things, but my most favorite instruction for people uh, to, on any kind of a retreat is to say, as you're with your breathing, breathing, the breath comes in, you don't, well, you do breathe, but I like to say it as the breath comes in, the breath goes out, the breath comes in, the breath goes out. And sometimes to use the breath as a kind of metronome to remind you to do this practice, but to say to yourself, rather than the the, uh, loving kindness phrases that we've all been taught and which I sometimes certainly use, I like to say to myself, may I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. And I think that in a certain way, those are the melded together intentions of both mindfulness practice and loving kindness practice. My friend Jack has been calling uh, mindfulness uh, loving attention. And I think more and more have been calling it loving attention uh, in in the place of I bring mindfulness to the moment, I bring loving attention to the moment. So I think he's, over time, maybe going to change the way that is. By the way, I didn't discuss that with him, so I don't know whether that's his intention. But I think that uh, my guess is that his uh, discovery, as mine is, is that you really cannot say, now I'm not doing loving kindness, I'm just doing mindfulness, that in every moment, unless there's a moment of hostility, unless there's a a taste of hospitality, hospitality, Mm -hmm. there you go. (laughs) (laughs) There are three words that could come out of hospital, hostel. (laughs) Hospitality has to be part of it. When we say to people, sit in a relaxed way, let the breath come to your body. That means don't grab it. Just let there and let the, the breath come to your body. Even that instruction means it's a miracle. As long as we're alive and there's enough green in the biosphere that we are kept alive. Let the breath come to your body. One breath after another, breath after breath after breath. And then here we are in this moment. And so to meet the moment, uh, don't pull it before it comes, but May I meet this moment fully? I really want to know what's going on. I want to be alert to it. And may I meet it as a friend? That's my, may I not flinch? If I'm, uh, sometimes if I'm giving a whole Dharma talk, I might read uh, the poem by Rumi of uh, the guest house, but it's been read so many times (laughs) on retreats that all I have to say is, 
think about the poem by Rumi called The Guest House and uh, not read it. For those people who are listening who don't know, the, first of all, you can Google it online, but say, think of this life as a guest house. Every morning you open the door and there's a grief, there's a worry, there's a, a problem to be solved, there's a this. Welcome them all in and you'll learn from all of them. It's a lovely poem. That's why they read it all the time at retreats. I have one thing to say and then a final question for you. The thing to say is just to amplify and validate the point you're making about the important partnership and perhaps at the end, oneness of mindfulness and loving kindness that I learned this lesson belatedly in my own practice over the last year or two that I realized through doing a lot of love and kindness practice that my my mindfulness practice had a big streak of aversion running through it that was unseen, that things would arrive in my mind, rushing or doubt or judgment or self-aggrandizement, and I would beat myself up for it in ways that I wasn't really seeing. And until I did this practice of loving kindness, which as I've said a thousand times on the show, I, I had a bad attitude about because it, it is, you know, at least superficially quite schlocky. Um, <laughs> it, it created a bombier weather pattern in my mind so that I was able to see, I have been better able to see whatever comes up and with a, with more friendliness. And that, that really is important. Which leads me to the question I wanted to ask you, and I meant to ask you this earlier, but we just got we just got rolling on so many other interesting things. But I know in the past you've described yourself as a worrier or a catastrophizer, and here we are at a time where worrying and catastrophizing seems eminently reasonable. So how are you with yourself when or if you see fear arising, given what's going on in the world? That's a good question. I was thinking about uh, for, uh, the the quick answer is I'm better, uh, and I'm happy to see that I'm 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 not so. Um, you might imagine, as as your question implies, you might imagine that a fretter has plenty to fret about these days, and I'm not fretting so much about it. It's as if my mind has recognized, as like if I think something a negative thought about X. And the mind just says, "You have no time for that. You got it's a big. There's a bigger thing happening. So forget about X and why you feel negatively about her. It's a, the same thing. If I have some catastrophic thought, it is already catastrophic. So it, there's nothing to think about. It's catastrophic in New York. Uh, it, it, but I really, I really feel like my mind just doesn't want to." The kind of fretting is, uh, what about, how about this? This might happen, this might happen, this might happen, this might happen. It's not happening with me. And I think because my mind is steady, because it is aware of what is happening, and that is a very captivating in, I don't know, it's the best sense of the word or not a good sense of the word. But, you know, sometimes on your retreat, they say, use this as an object. And people say, well, the breath is not so interesting as an object. I can't stay with it. Or use physical sensations up and down your body. Use that as an object. Say, yeah, my body feels fine. It's not that interesting. We have, whether we just certainly didn't want it, 
there's one big thing that's looming over the entire earth that we're part of, and you can't not pay attention to it. It has become, I think, the background of the mind. And like fretting is ridiculous. Why fret? It's either it's either going to be X or Y. I think, for, at least for me, I'm hopeful that it has installed wisdom into people in in terms of being able to differentiate between what's important and what's not important. Is the grudge that I had on so and so in the sphere of what's happening? So should I rehearse that grudge again, or should I remember why I don't like my ex husband, or? Uh, why you know he is this big thing holding your attention and presumably this is a very buddhist thing to say i didn't think i was gonna say well but okay to end that a very good buddhist thing it's so captivating that i uh, one i don't think this is a big thing to hope it's so captivating this great thing that all of a sudden we see everybody is suffering everybody is vulnerable that the first noble truth is really true I don't need to add anything to that. That's already true. It's astounding. It's immobilizing. And the only, or it's immobilizing in terms of my mind getting caught up in it. I have no room in my mind for that. This is here. And, and compassion for the world is the only possible response, I think. Does that make sense to you? It does. I go back to what I said before about wanting to borrow your mind because I still get caught in fretting about self, selfish issues. Am I going to get sick? Is, are my parents going to get sick? Yeah. What's going to happen to this company? I work for two companies. What's going to happen to either of them? Does that not happen to you? I mean, I also have compassion for for the world right now, yeah, I'm, yeah. Uh, but I can't say it's blotting out the sun. No, no. <laughs> No, I have I have thoughts I have thoughts like that for any of my family. Uh, uh, where are they and how are they? And uh, no, I have thoughts like that. Uh, I I actually the thoughts like that of, that are thoughts of personal survival. My family, my children, my grandchildren. I don't think those go away. I think those are wired into us, and they're not absurd thoughts. They're not. Uh, uh, they're not uh, the bus is late. Uh, it's truly in a ravine. They're not fa- fabricated thoughts of things that might happen, uh, the, uh, of illogical things that might happen. Um, I think what happens. I think those, but I think they they don't trouble my mind in terms of oh, I'm so concerned with myself. I think I'm supposed to be concerned with my family's well being. That's how I'm strung. Uh, that's why I think. When we start with meta practice, we start with those who are nearest and dearest to us, and because we we're really connected to them, we really really want things to be well with them. And I think what the way that meta practice works when people are really practicing it is that they discover that not only are they able to wish well easily for those people that are dear to them, but that it's the conduit to wish well for the people who are not so near to us, even the people that we don't know who are on the other side of the globe or somewhere, because uh, both because we suddenly get a a deeply grokked feeling of everybody suffers the same. And also because I have the feeling that to lessen, uh, to take time to say, well, not everybody, just mine or just mine. Sometimes I do think I'll I'll tell you, uh, but I know we're supposed to finish 
but I'll tell you this vignette because it's a little bit has to do with that. On the first day of the World Series in 1989, I was sitting in the basement of my hundred and some year old wooden frame house here in California and with two clients of mine, psychotherapy clients of mine. And suddenly the room began to shake because it was a very big earthquake in San Francisco at the opening game of the World Series. And we looked at each other and somebody said, this is an earthquake. Let's step outside the building. And we stepped outside the building. And I thought about it till now afterwards. The first thing I did is I looked at my watch because looking at my watch, I knew instantly where my four adult children were at that time. And I knew also what the likelihood that they were on a bridge was. And it could not have been more than five seconds to look, estimate, and know that they were probably all right to be able to say to the people, let's go upstairs, let's turn on the TV, let's see what's happening to other people. But the first thing that happens is where are my people and how are they? And I think that that's wired into us. And I'm happy that it's wired into us. It's the conduit to learn how to love other people, I think. Yeah, and and compassion and care, this is omnidirectional force. So, of course, it's going to include yourself and and the people closest to you. But but it can also include everybody. And I I really like the way, I think this is a good place to end it, the describing compassion as your savior in this difficult and dark time. And I, you know, I've been thinking about writing an article, you know, what's going to save us right now is a cliche (laughs) love. (laughs) And, (laughs) and I don't think we should overdo it because I don't, it's not that I love the Beatles, but I think they were wrong when they said love is all you need. You also need toilet paper and Clorox wipes, but (laughs) But it is it is a savior. It can it doesn't mean you're not focused on your your own well-being, because, of course, compassion goes in all directions. And it doesn't mean you don't look at your watch to make sure that your kids aren't on a bridge when the earthquake hits or whatever hits. But it also means that when you're getting bogged down in your self-centered concerns, turning to the person next to you, even if you've never met them and inquiring about their well-being can be enormously uplifting. And by the way, it's good for society. Mm, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Did, is there something I should have asked or a direction we should have gone in that I failed to take us or uh, did we get it all out? I don't know. I think we said it all. When you said this last thing and you said this should be the end, it should be the end. And uh, uh, just to underscore that thing about love is the answer. The other reason that loving in the sense of turning to the person next to you doesn't mean loving. It means putting the attention on somebody is the answer is that when you, when the energy of uh, affection or positive is going out from you, it um, dispels any negativity in you. You can't be driving your car forward and in reverse at the same time. So it is the absolute dispeller of ill will in the mind which is, again, the savior. That's how come the person next to me is always my savior. Yes. Hence the term enlightened self-interest, or as the, the uh, Dalai Lama said, wise selfishness. Uh, uh, yes, it's mildly annoying because it's a cliche, but also profoundly true. Yeah, I keep go. thinking of something one of, our, one of my guests once said to me that she heard from a meditation teacher. If you can't be comfortable with the cheesiness, you can't be free. And uh, I think that that pretty much says it all. Um, uh, 
Sylvia, su- such a pleasure to see you. I'm glad you're doing well. Um, and and thanks for coming on and uh, sharing your experience, your vignettes, your giggle, your wisdom, all of that with us. It's been a pleasure. Big thanks to Sylvia. A couple of reminders before we go. If you haven't checked it out, please check out 10% Happier Live every weekday, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific. We're doing a quick sanity break, five minutes of guided meditation from some of the best uh, teachers in the world, followed by Q&A, your questions. Uh, you, if you miss it live, you can watch it. Uh, you can watch the replays on our YouTube channel. Just search for 10% Happier on YouTube, or you can watch it in the 10% Happier app. Speaking of the app, if you're a healthcare worker and you're not currently subscribed, we want to support you by offering free access. First of all, we want to salute you for doing your work at Right now, it's incredibly brave and extraordinarily important, as you know. So if you want to learn more about how to get free access or if you want to share this with any healthcare worker you know, go to 10percent.com slash care, 10percent.com slash care. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And as I've said on previous episodes, we're thinking about healthcare workers in the broadest possible sense. So EMTs, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, techs, administrative folks, you name it. Uh, let's think broadly here and let's try to help everybody associated with this industry keep their heads on their shoulders at a time when we really need you guys. So thanks again for what you do. And thanks to the team who helped put this show together. Samuel Johns leading the charge. Jackson Bierfeldt is our editor. Maria Wirtel is our production coordinator. We derive a lot of wisdom from our colleagues uh, at 10% Happier, like Ben Rubin, Jen Poyant, Nate Toby. Also, big thank you to uh, the team at ABC News, without whom none of this would be possible, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll be back on Monday with a freshie. We'll see you then. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, 
Music Field Weekly Party, where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.